You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. You know, Robert Spector, in his book, The Mom and Pop Store, How the Unsung Heroes of the American Economy Are Surviving and Thriving, wrote, quote, Mom and pop stores are not about something small. They are about something big. 90% of all U.S. businesses are family-owned or controlled. They are important not only for the food, drink, clothing, and tools they sell us, but also for providing us with intellectual stimulation, social interaction, and connection to our communities. We must have mom-and-pop stores because we are social animals. We crave to be part of the marketplace, end quote. I share this with you because small businesses in America do not get the attention or the consideration they deserve from the policymakers in our nation's state houses and in Washington, D.C., So before I bring our guest on today, I'm going to share some statistics with you. And these come from the U.S. Small Business Administration as of 2020. In 2020, there were 31.7 million small businesses across the United States, from the single self-employed entrepreneur to small businesses with less than 100 employees. Combined, they have 60.6 million employees, or 47% of the private sector workforce. 5.2 million of those small businesses are either minority-owned or self-employed minorities. In 2019, before the pandemic struck, small businesses created 1.6 million net new jobs. Firms employing fewer than 20 employees experienced the largest gains, adding 1.1 million net new jobs. A lot of the major companies we see today started out as small businesses. From Amazon to Apple to Nike, Walmart, and Whole Foods. Many of them started in a garage or a small shop, and they've grown to become market disruptors, employing millions. They could not do that without the freedom to create and innovate. Now, in that regard, there are very few organizations that fight to help small business against state actions that harm the small business community. And that's where today's guest comes in. The National Federation of Independent Business has been around since 1943 and is the voice of small business, advocating on behalf of small and independent business owners, both in Washington, D.C. and in all 50 state capitals. NFIB is nonprofit, nonpartisan, and member-driven. And in fact, 60% of its membership has either five or less employees or five or fewer employees. Now, NFIB has over 300,000 members who are your mom and pops. And earlier today, I had the privilege to speak to Jeff Braben, NFIB's Senior Manager of Government Relation. Now, Jeff's responsible for labor and financial services policy and joined NFIB in early 2018. And although he's a native New Jerseyan, which we spoke briefly about, Jeff holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from Pennsylvania's Franklin and Marshall College and currently resides in Alexandria, Virginia. So he's mostly inside the Beltway. 
Prior to joining NFIB's staff, Jeff spent more than 10 years on Capitol Hill, beginning his career working for his hometown congressman, first as an intern, then later serving in a full-time capacity in multiple positions. From there, Jeff went on to work for former Rep. John Runyon as a legislative assistant, and after Rep. Representative Runyon's retirement, Jeff joined the staff of Congressman Tom MacArthur's uh, staff as legislative director. Since joining NFIB, Jeff has managed NFIB's opposition to onerous regulations like the Fight for 15 or $15 minimum wage, the PRO Act, along with other issues. Now, before I bring Jeff on, I should mention that as we were re- recording, we got cut off a couple times due to internet issues. So if the interview sounds like it has been edited, that's because we were literally knocked offline. In any case, here's Jeff. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Jeff Braban, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So I've been a follower of NFIB for years, um, and I think I'm I'm trying to get people on the program that kind of know what's going on in D.C. because the political winds shift from administration to administration. But what does NFIB do? And like, what is your membership like? Sure. So NFIB, National Federation of Independent Business, uh, we represent uh, small and independent businesses uh, all over the United States. So we have about 300,000 members. And in order to be eligible to be an NFIB member, you need to be an independently owned business. So what that means is you can't be publicly traded on a stock exchange. So these are all independent businesses. Due to that fact, our members tend to be very small. Uh, uh, as one would expect, the vast majority of small businesses in this country, over or over 99% of businesses in this country, happen to be small businesses by the SBA's definition. So, our members, about 80 to 90% of them, have 20 or fewer employees. Uh, we have a lot of sole proprietors. We have a lot of self-employed members. A lot of very small employers. So, uh, what we look out for are the interests of small employers. Uh, Generally speaking, if you're a, a very large business, you probably employ your own lobbyist. But uh, if you have three or four employees or you're a sole proprietor, obviously you can't afford to do that. And that's where NFIB comes in. We have a low due structure, which allows people to pay uh, uh, not a lot of money to basically uh, employ myself or others on our team to represent them in all 50 state capitals and in the United States Capitol. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. You're in the state houses as well, right? Yep, all 50 state capitals, we have a presence. One of the things that differentiates NFIB from some other groups is we work in every state as well as the federal government. And you're not, uh, the members are not of one specific industry. They're across the spectrum, right? That's correct. We have all different types of members. We have uh, bars and restaurants. We have manufacturers. uh, We have financial services. Every different type of industry you can think of. Uh, that's uh, independently owned and operated shop uh, happen to be NFIB members. So let me ask you, what are you hearing from your members these days? So we do uh, monthly surveys trying to get a feel for how our members uh, are doing. We've been doing these going back. It's been very helpful, actually, since the late 1970s. So we can really track uh, historically how they're feeling. And the biggest issues uh, our members have been dealing with lately have been uh, A, inflation, 
uh, B supply chains and C uh, labor and employment in terms of qualified workforce and affordability of their labor uh, and, and workforce. So, uh, and, the, and the cost of the labor and workforce is really contributing to inflation. Uh, so that's, I mean, the inflation they're feeling is kind of twofold. One is from the supply chain, which uh, largely has had a control. And, and secondly, is from the, the cost of labor. It's at an all-time high. Um, our members are increasing pay, increasing benefits to attract people, and they're still having a very difficult time filling positions. Um, so, and they end up, but when they do increase this pay and benefits, they end up passing it on largely to their consumers. And that's one of the reasons we've been feeling inflation lately. Right. Um, are they seeing the, any kind of easing in the labor force at all? Or is it uh, still it's, bad? It, it's still bad. We haven't seen much of a difference. Um, I mean, this goes back several years now. I mean, the, it was a it was a pretty good labor environment if you were an employee, not an employer, uh, before the pandemic, and that's just gotten significantly worse. Um, if you go back earlier in the pandemic, uh, when people in many states uh, were getting um, unemployment payments to uh, essentially not work, that really started a problem. We heard from a lot of members. At the time that those enhanced unemployment insurance benefits were a real problem with trying to get people back in the workforce, especially when it was disrupted due to COVID. Uh, obviously, that doesn't exist anymore, but people are still seeing a, a real problem with trying to, to get a, a workforce that uh, they're obviously trying to pay fair wages, but when you increase them significantly, then consumers are going to start to feel those prices as well. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that, and this may open us up to another conversation. I don't know that a lot of people connected the dots back when we were first looking at the shutdowns when Congress passed the supplemental insurance, the unemployment insurance. They basically made it to be about fifteen dollars an hour. That's six hundred dollars per week, which is you know divide that by forty hours. That's fifteen dollars an hour, and then the the people who are closed down or shut down due to lockdowns were on top of that getting their state unemployment. So a lot of people were actually making more sitting at home than they were working. Yeah, that we, that was a real challenge for our members. Uh, when that happened, we were actually one of the only groups to oppose that bill for, had a few other issues we had with that I won't get into on here. Um, and we warned Congress this may be a problem. It ended up being a problem. Uh, we heard from quite a few irate members who um, you know, who may have had to, to furlough employees or um, their employees opted to leave. And when they tried to bring them back, their employees, often their answer was, why would I come back if I can make the same or more money at home? This makes no sense. So I think in the fall, you saw a little improvement in the labor market when those benefits expired. Um, however, some significant challenges still remain. Well, you know, part of that, there's a, a Fed study that was done, I think it was uh, last year, but it was talking about 2020 where the savings rate increased substantially during the initial phases of the lockdown, the first several months of the lockdown. So people were getting all this extra money and then saving it, which meant at the back end, they could continue staying at home as opposed to going out and finding a job. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And at the back end, it's also probably led to some of the increased demand we're, we're seeing that's affecting uh, inflation right now. I'm no economist, but Obviously, if you have oversized demand, you're gonna you're gonna uh, see some inflationary pressures here. And you're not seeing any easing of that yet. 
No, our monthly surveys have been pretty consistent. Uh, inflation, uh, cost of labor, supply chains still remain either at or near all-time highs. I mean, going back to you know the late 70s, early 80s. So it's been really problematic and doesn't seem to be getting too much better, at least in our last several surveys here. Right. So, so what else is going on in D.C. from NFIB standpoint? Sure. So uh, Build Back Better was the, uh, you know, the the big game in town. I'm sure everyone's heard about going on probably a calendar year at this point. Um, that sucked up a lot of the oxygen in the room. And um, that thing is probably 90 plus percent not going to happen now. Never say never. Right. But um, probably not going to happen. Uh, we had some real concerns with that on the tax side, which I won't get into on this podcast. But uh, on the labor side, there were some real concerns with that as well. Um, there were some uh, paid leave mandates in the original version that were last three months. Um, and I think what a lot of people fail to realize is if you're a small employer, um, you never have had to comply with the Family Medical Leave Act, the FMLA. So if you're 50 or fewer employees, you haven't had to comply with that meaning you've never had to do the paperwork uh, that, that goes into allowing an employee uh, some kind of paid leave. So we were just trying to really inform Congress, hey, if you do this, this is going to be a real uh, paperwork and compliance challenge for small businesses because they've never had to do this. A lot of people uh, chose to ignore those, to ignore that. And then, of, call, of course, you have the issue that's always been there that's a really tricky issue is, Let's say you're an employer of five employees. If you lose an employee for three months, that's 20% of your workforce. Right. Um, and we're sympathetic to sometimes people need time off. And generally speaking, uh, our members tell us that they uh, they want the flexibility to not have a government program imposed upon them, telling them how they have to do their time off, telling them how they have to file paperwork. They prefer to do it themselves and work out some kind of plan with their employees. So because if they lose 20% of their workforce, it's not the easiest thing to deal with, and the federal government isn't always going to have the best solution to help you fill that uh, 20% of your workforce there. Uh, other issues in Build Back Better, and some of the ones that are, in my opinion, some of the most outrageous provisions put in there were the massive new uh, penalties for uh, labor law violations. Um, if you look at the Fair Labor Standards Act, right now the penalty is a little over $1,000 if you have an overtime or a minimum wage violation. That's the maximum penalty. They wanna increase that to over $20,000 per violation with a strict liability standard. Now, what a strict liability standard means is if you're an employer and uh, you have uh, overtime and someone works 42 hours, you're doing your payroll by hand because you're a very small business like many of our very small business owner members do, uh, and someone works 42 hours, and you forget that they work two hours overtime. So you paid them those 42 hours uh, at their regular rate, and they didn't get time and a half for their extra two hours there. So you may have underpaid them, let's hypothetically, by $50. Um, if uh, DOL gets wind of this, uh, and they can fine you for up to $20,000 for that violation, uh, where it's currently a little over $1,000. So that can really put a small business in jeopardy of going out of business there. That is strict liability means it doesn't matter if it's a one-time honest mistake, you know, you, you were doing payroll, you lost track of things, strict liability. They can find you up to $20,000. That was a real concern. There's also massive new uh, fines in the National Labor Relations Act, in OSHA. So some of these fines have really flown under the radar 
because right. there's so much other, uh, so many other provisions in Build Back Better that people are concerned about, mostly on the tax side of things and some of the new social programs. But those are things for a small business owner that they have to be really concerned about. It's interesting that um, you know all this stuff gets crammed in there, and it and it largely will pass or fail on party line votes. And not to get into specific parties, but I'm always curious as to whether one of those parties actually knows what business is all about or if they even care. You know, when they go to pass all this stuff and it goes down party line votes, is there nobody on that side that understands that running a business is not that easy? Yeah, I think it's really difficult to understand what a small business owner goes through. And that's why I think our members are usually our best advocates. If we get a a member from their district to go in their office and explain what this actually means to the business, you know, outside the academic sense, outside the CBO numbers, what does this mean to my business? Um, Our members always like to say, hey, you know, we need someone who signs the front of a check rather than the back of a check to, to kind of inform you on how some of these decisions make because they don't happen in a vacuum. Like we were talking about with inflation, if you increase minimum wage and you do mandatory uh, increased benefits in the form of mandatory, let's say, sick leave or paid leave, uh, and maybe mandatory retirement benefits that some people are pushing, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. There could be inflationary pressures from that that businesses have to pass on. Uh, it's the same idea with, with minimum wage. We had a, a great witness who testified at the um, Senate Banking Committee last year on $15 minimum wage. Senate Banking usually doesn't weigh into these issues, but it was at a time when every committee was kind of taking a swing at minimum wage. It was the popular t- uh, issue at the time. And he had owned a, uh, they had a family-owned bakery in uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, had been running since the 70s. And uh, when New York City increased their minimum wage to $15, this was one you know small bakery, they, they obviously had to comply. And eventually they had to pass those costs on to their, uh, to their consumers. And their, the cost of a loaf of bread went up, the cost of a muffin went up, the cost of all their products went up significantly to the point that their consumers who used to come in almost every day to get fresh bread were now coming in maybe once a week. And they were losing business because people were saying, well, at these costs, I can just go down the store to the, the big box store and get it significantly cheaper because they can produce it cheaper because they're a much larger business. Uh, and eventually they had to uh, close up shop and move out to Long Island and kind of change their whole business operation. So these policies really do have consequences, um, especially if you're one of these uh People who are very, who act very small business friendly and don't want to see a lot of consolidation of small businesses to bigger businesses, uh, you know, labor mandates are one of the things that makes it extremely expensive for small businesses to compete with bigger businesses and could be leading to some consolidation of uh, small business into larger businesses. Well, you know, there's uh, there's been a push going on um, about 10 years now for the, the fight for 15 push, right, nationwide. Mm-hmm. And the... The, um, I guess the other thing that they call it is the living wage. And I've seen posts, you know, mostly coming from the left on, well, if a company cannot pay, it doesn't matter what size company, if a company cannot pay a living wage, they don't deserve to be in business. And I find that ignorance extremely um, frustrating because we've got a whole 
cache of people out there that just either they don't care that people when businesses go under lose their jobs or you know there's a bigger agenda out there and so now we're seeing i think the fight for 15 movement is kind of morphing into something else at this point but they're still out there trying to increase the minimum wage nationwide one size fits all you know new york is different than say alabama or georgia or south carolina and you're all of a sudden going to drive up the labor costs without considering the ramifications on the back end yeah um I mean, it's really it's really tough if you're a small business owner, if you're an entrepreneur, it's probably not the best idea. If you're an entrepreneur and you're just getting started, you're going to have extremely thin profit margins. And just because there's a mandate that you have to pay X, Y and Z doesn't mean you can afford it on such thin profit margins. Now, there may become a time. Uh, when you have a little more time to become a little more mature business and you may grow and you may be become, you might become an Amazon one day who can afford uh, to pay minimum wage. And that's great. And I think that's every small business owner's dream, right? To, to be able to pay. But just because there's a mandate, you know, economics still exists. You can afford to pay what you can afford to pay. And, you know, eventually you're going to have to raise prices or, or, or deal with the, the increased costs some way. And you might go out of business or you might reduce your profit margins and be less competitive, and that could have longer-term implications as well. But, yeah, these things don't exist in a vacuum. They're, they're very difficult for small business owners. You know, I had a friend uh, probably about a month ago, we were doing an episode, and we were talking about the National Labor Relations Act and the one-size-fits-all kind of concepts, and specifically about small businesses. And he made an interesting, um, I guess, recommendation, and that was, you know, we maybe we should maybe look at all these different laws and, you know, like FMLA, when it first came out, was, you know, for employers of 25 or more employees. Why not start considering that for whether it's Fight for 15 or, you know, NLRA or, you know, National Labor Relations Act, things like that? Because a lot of people don't realize from a small business perspective, it really, like, it can severely handcuff or hamper a small business's business, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we actively push for those types of exemptions, um, and we had we had offered up uh, when um, these new paid leave programs are suggested. Hey, you know, just remember FMLA. There's a reason Congress put this um, 50 employee threshold in the first place because they recognize that small employers have a more difficult time complying with this, and uh, obviously, bigger employers probably comply with it in the first place, so it's a little easier. Um, people don't seem to be as sympathetic to those types of arguments as maybe they were in the 90s, for example. In the 90s, there, there was the Regulatory Flexibility Act. There were a few other acts that went through that explicitly acknowledged, hey, it's hard being a small business, and maybe one-size-fits-all laws and regulations are a bad idea, and we should try to uh, have a little bit of flexibility with, with small business owners um, more recently, trying to push those concepts has not been as successful. I don't think there's as much sympathy um, to certain actors on Capitol Hill with those arguments. Um, so, unfortunately, uh, I don't know how successful those arguments are right now. But uh, there has been a time in the past when Congress has acknowledged these things. Well, that kind of goes to the political climate that we're in. Everybody's kind of like gone further to the extremes, whether it be right or left. And it seems to be that 
very few people have common sense anymore, at least, you know, in DC. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> you don't need to comment on that if that's, that may get uh, you in yeah. trouble. But <laughs> I, I hear what you mean, but yeah, the, the extremes make it difficult. Um, you know, our, our goal is to have a, a pro small business Congress. And uh, we have, we have uh, moderate Democrats that we're, we work well with. Um, and obviously, you never want to see them uh, get primaried by the far left and knock out someone who, uh, just because they're, you know, supportive of some small businesses in their district and may have some moderate views. So uh, we work really well with moderates on, on both sides of the aisle. And um, if you lose some of them, it, it makes it a little more a little more difficult to get bipartisan support for issues which you really need. Yeah. Hey, I noticed you guys filed, you folks, filed a uh, amicus brief on the Atlanta Opera case with the NLRB. And yes. we're talking about small businesses, and perhaps that's on behalf of the smallest of businesses out there, the independent contractors. Yeah, so the independent contractor issue is um, something that's very important to small business owners and independent contractors. Uh, both to allow small business owners to continue to be able to to work with and contract independent contractors, and to allow independent contractors the freedom and flexibility to continue to work the way they want to work, for lack of a better term. Um, if you if you impose, let's say, if we're talking big picture here, an ABC style California Massachusetts test, right? And the the big the big issue I have with that, and NFIB has with that is uh, one of the prongs uh, is that the worker has to perform work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. So as you've seen in California, we've had- That's, uh, that's prong, that's the B part of that, right? Yes, the prong B prong. B. And that's, in my opinion, the most important one because we've seen in California where all, all these unintended consequences, they're trying to go after Uber and Lyft to allow them to unionize. And next thing you know, there's musicians trying to get gigs at restaurants we're now losing that because they turned in from a gig worker to a uh, employee because entertainment is the usual course of a bar or restaurant's business, right? Uh, we had a, a member called a few years back. Um, it's an interesting example I, I like to use a lot is they, this was a, a person who owned a tutoring service and uh, he recruited teachers who would come, you know, they get out, out of their school day at three, four o'clock and they would come at night uh, on a gig basis to uh, tutor students whenever they were available. They, they did it whenever they wanted. So they were not uh, employees by the book. They were uh, independent contractors because they chose their own hours. They obviously weren't working a lot of hours, but it was, it was a good thing. Some teachers got some extra money. Uh, they got the flexibility and the hours they wanted. Uh, if they were to get an ABC test in that state where uh, this member was from, his business would then have to convert them all to employees. And there'd be all host of issues with that. So, um, there are a lot of very legitimate uh, business practices that, that use independent contractors, and I don't think anyone would look at that business and say, oh, no, 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 that's terrible. They shouldn't be independent contractors. The teachers are happy with the situation. The business owners are happy with the situation, and likely the uh, people uh, who, are, who are paying for the tutoring services, if they were converted to employees, would probably have to pay a lot more money for those tutoring services. So there's a lot of people who are happy with the situation. Um, so if you were to change that, that there's going to be a whole host of consequences. And the frustrating thing to me about some of these independent contractor rulings and, and regulations is that they're, 
Their goal is to get more unionized workers in certain industries, the gig industries. Right. However, they don't actually target them in the legislation. They target everyone, and including people they don't want to. I mean, if you look at California's law, they had dozens of exclusions they had to write into the bill because they realized, oh, boy, this is going to affect a lot of people. We don't want this to affect. Um, that's the real frustrating thing from the... A small from the small business owner's perspective. And, and the interesting thing about that is, yes, in California, they passed AB5, the ABC test, which was AB5. It crushed a bunch of independent contractors, small businesses. Then they went back and amended it or did carve-outs after the fact. That, I don't believe, could happen if they did it at the federal level. Yeah, and, that, and that's where the, the PRO Act, which I'm sure we'll touch on right. quite a bit more, comes into play. And that's one of the, the scary things about the, the PRO Act um, is there's so many, so many bad provisions in there. But the ABC test, we're talking about going to the left of California on independent contractor law having no exemptions. And I got to think that there are Democratic senators Obviously, they don't have the full 50 co-sponsors. Yes, there's two that come to mind, obviously, who aren't co-sponsoring, but others that are co-sponsors who would probably want to see this thing amended before it became law, you would hope, um, not only for, for the ABC test, but a whole host of other provisions that it's all, it, the, the PRO Act seems to be more of an um, aspirational um, bill to the unions to, to curry favor than it does to see, to me, to seem as a serious piece of legislation. Well, you know, on the, on the ABC test, um, I had been following, cause I do labor relations. I, I had been following the pro acts for a couple years cause it had passed twice in the house. And it wasn't until last year, like I was focused on the binding arbitration, the, um, fines, the, you know, outlawing captive audience meetings, all the normal union stuff. And it wasn't until last year that a, a friend wrote an article about the ABC test in there and, you know, the independent contractors. And I was like, I literally DM'd her on Facebook. I was like, well, you know, there's a whole bunch of this other stuff and, you know, removal of right to work states and all that stuff. And she was like, kind of pushed that all aside and said, there's 59 million people involved in this. I was like, Huh. So then I started studying it a little bit more. I actually last week just had uh, the uh, fight for freelancers on uh, the podcast and, and we're talking to a couple of them that have been knee deep in the fight or neck deep in the fight for the last couple of years from the freelance level and also filed an amicus brief with the Atlanta opera case. But yeah, that it's the ABC test is huge and, and nobody really, unless you're involved in it, nobody really understands it or even has heard of it. Yeah. yeah it's, um, I mean, it's, that's one of the things we're probably most focused on the pro act as you know, the small business advocacy organization is because, yeah, we have a, a small percentage of our members who are unionized and we're worried about a whole host of the union election law issues you brought up. Um, but if you're not unionized, you know, the ABC test will affect you. Um, I don't know that the specific number of um, it's hard to really quantify the specific number of independent contractors out there, but you know, there's over 20 million sole proprietors and the non-employer sole proprietors in the United States. Right. I would imagine a strong percentage of them operate as independent contractors. And that's a big, big deal. Uh, and many of them that won't affect, but there's going to be 
more more of them that would affect it have no idea it's coming that can completely impact their business model than than they'd have any idea about. And that's the scary thing is when you, if Congress were to pass a piece of legislation, they don't really understand the consequences of. I mean, in California is starting to get at it, and that's with dozens of industries exempt, but without those exemptions, it's gonna be a lot of scary unintended consequences. Yeah, I literally just had a conversation over the weekend with a relative whose whole business is freelancing, doing film editing. And I was like, hey, have you ever heard of the ABC, uh, ABC test? She's like, no. And she's in Massachusetts and is like, you know, kind of went through the conversation and, you know, again, John Q. Public, Jane Q. Public, they don't hear about it or see it until it affects them. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Do you mind talking about the joint employer thing? Yeah, sure. So in the PRO Act and potentially with a regulation coming out of the Department of Labor later this year, uh, we're going to be looking at potentially a stricter joint employer standard. And to a lot of people, when they hear joint employer, it's a, it's a little confusing. But the way I like to break it down is if you're a franchisee, you, you, you are an independent owner of a franchise. You went and you paid a lot of money for your franchise. You have, you have control over your workforce in that you, you, you choose what they make, what their benefits are, what hours they work. Uh, you're in control. You're the owner of the franchise. You paid a lot of money. It's your independently owned business. Uh, if this new stricter joint employer standard comes online, either through the PRO Act or potentially through the Department of Labor, you would now be considered a joint employer with corporate franchise, meaning that uh, your 10 employees at your local franchise uh, can team up with the other, let's say, 500,000 franchise, uh, independent franchise employees around the country in that same franchise, let's say, hypothetically, a Burger King. Uh, you can then go ahead and say to corporate, uh, all right, we're gonna unionize and we're gonna work a collective bargaining agreement out with corporate. And that's going to apply to each of the independently held franchisees. So if you're that owner of that independently held franchise and all of a sudden you're not in charge of anything in the CBA, including uh, uh, wages, benefits, hours, break time, a whole host of issues that can be collectively bargained, you really you lose your independence. You paid millions of dollars for this franchise potentially, and now you don't even have control over any of the terms of your workforce. And that's really problematic to the independence of a franchise owner, and can potentially really impact that model. It's going to make it's going to make it a lot less appealing to to individuals to buy one of these franchises. Especially think about it, if you're in a lower income part of the country, if you're in rural. Uh, Mississippi, and you have and you own a franchise, uh, you could potentially be paying California wages uh, because of the collective bargaining agreement. So that that can be really problematic for the whole model and for the independence of people who've invested a lot of money to start their own business. Well, and let me run this by because I've been looking at it from a slightly different perspective. Um, if they go full on joint employer status, and McDonald's was you know, the large target back in the fight for 15. The part of the problem with joint employer is if you're a franchisee, say in Timbuktu, Iowa, Iowa, and, you know, an employer in New York, another franchisee violates the National Labor Relations Act or some other wage law, um, that because they're, they also are a joint employer that goes to McDonald's corporate and then with the National Labor Relations Act, if there's enough violations and they're 
significant violations and it doesn't even have to be your store, potentially they could put a bargaining order that would affect all of the franchises or a neutrality agreement, you know, because the the parent company who has also assumed that liability is under a strict order from the National Labor Relations Board. And yeah, with, go ahead. with the current general counsel, the NLRB, and she's looking at all these different remedies and and including um, card check, which backdoor card check, really, you know, there's a whole bunch of other ramifications from a liability standpoint that, you know, even though it may not even be you, as you're talking about, you know, in Timbuktu, Iowa, somebody in New York City, California, whatever, if they violate the law, it's also going to wind up affecting you if you're under the joint employer standard. Yeah, the joint liability issue you, you spoke to is really, really scary. And how that would work out in principle is is something that could have a lot of potential consequences all over the country, like you touched on. So that's another thing that you know eats at the independence of the franchise owner, and that's our big concern as you know the National Federation of Independent Businesses. You know, you spent all this money to be to work and operate as an independent employer, and the rules of the game when you started where you were going to have a, quite a bit of independence as a franchise owner and. If you're deemed a joint employer, that's going to be taken away, and there's going to be a lot of things out of your control that are now going to dictate uh, what's going to happen at your business, which is not something that if you took a big chance on, you want to have, you know, put it up to fate to, to determine what exactly is going to happen to your business. Right. Um, did you see what came out of, are, are you following what's happening with Amazon and, and the uh, current attempts to unionize Amazon? different parts of the country? Uh, loosely. Um, I, I believe it was the Alabama plant where they had to redo the election. Am I correct in that? Right. Yeah. So yesterday, um, and I, this may be one you want to like kind of raise up the, the totem pole, so to speak, the um, union filed some unfair labor practices, three of them. Yeah. The, the company is allegedly taking, uh, union flyers out of break rooms or throwing them away or taking them down or something. And then, but one of the, one of the three charges was that, and this is going to, they're going to hopefully in, from their standpoint, apply this to all companies. The charge was that the company holding meetings with the employees is inherently coercive. So they're going to, they're filing these charges in the hopes of getting the national labor relations board to either ban or uh, order equal time for union organizers to come onto company property to talk with employees. And uh, this is gonna take months to unfold probably, but it's, it was interesting as that just came out yesterday, the union filing more charges, and they flat out said they want it to be precedent setting. So. Yeah, that would that would be very interesting from a precedent perspective, like you were saying, um, you know, pushing the, pushing the, the law, I, I, I'm not an expert in this this area of the law, pushing it probably past where it currently is and you know, pushing the NLRB to 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 make another kind of political charged politically charged decision that they may not have statutory authority, which and then you kind of that always brings you to if they do that, and then you get a Republican presidency and it gets flipped and right. Um, pendulum. Yeah, you it's never great for business owners when you get that back and forth or if it goes to court. Um a lot of these issues, especially from the rulemaking environment, get difficult where you might have a rulemaking or a decision by an NLRB. And um, it's really tough if you put your, your yourself in the shoes of a small business owner, do I comply with this when I know it might be thrown out in court? 
And a lot of them just have to go ahead and comply and they might get their eye on court six months later. And there was a lot of cost in that compliance. And this happens quite a bit um, when the regulatory state kind of oversteps to an extent. And, and you know, an NFIB of the world end up suing and, and winning potentially, but it still has a real cost to business owners um, because many of them obviously didn't, while while the lawsuit was going through, want to run afoul of the law. So it's it's it has a lot of, again, consequences a lot of people don't always think about. Yeah, I, it's the, uh, the either the equal time or the banning of employers speaking to their employees, which that in itself is going to be legally challenging, um, if not challenged. But the I can't imagine a small business owner who has spent all their savings and hard work over the years and all that to build a business saying that they have to have to allow a union organizer to meet with employees on their property. That's probably yeah. not going to sit too well with small businesses. It's the Let same idea ones. with the, the sharing of the personal information. Um, right. I mean, we asked our members about that. They weren't too pleased where there's a provision, the PRO Act, where you have to share all the, the personal contact information um, essentially with union organizers before an election. So personal cell phone numbers, home addresses, personal email addresses, et cetera, of the workforce with the organizers so the organizer can twist arms before a union election. Um a lot, of, a lot of owners don't like doing that because they're, I mean, that's almost a violation of trust with certain employees who then, you know, might get a knock on their door at home. That's a, that's a, that's a scary thing in terms of violation of trust. So a lot of people don't realize that um, companies, if they have a union election scheduled, have to provide that information anyway. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, it's been that standard since not emails, obviously, but, you know, it's been that standard for decades. Um, what I think the PRO Act is doing is they're saying if a union's got, you know, if they show up out on the sidewalk out front, they should express an interest, then you have to provide it, you know, all that information without a filing. But after a filing, once the, the NLRB schedules an election, companies have had to do to provide all that information for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. It gets a little confusing um, for employers out there without knowing the nuances to it. Yeah. And unfortunately, the talking points a lot of times when you hear, well, you know, we're going to have to provide all this information, the unions just shoot right back and say, well, you already have to do that anyway. So it's not a big deal. But without knowing the nuances. Yeah, exactly. Then why is it in the bill? Um, right. If it's if it's our if it's not an issue, then you shouldn't be relitigating it. And there, there was one other big small business issue in the PRO Act I'd like to touch on quickly. Sure. Um, and that's um, secondary picketing and boycotts. Um, and that, as a term, probably doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. But what that can potentially mean um, is uh, if you, let's say, uh, Boeing uh, and their union, I, I'm assuming it's UAW, who knows who it is. but uh, I am, machinist. Machinist. Let's say they have a um, labor dispute and the, the machinists are on strike. And... Um, they can then, if you allow secondary picketing and boycotts, which the PRO Act does, uh, find a supplier in the supply chain uh, who might be an NFIB member, who might have six employees who produces a widget for an airplane, and either boycott or picket their um, that supplier because they do business with Boeing. It'd be the same idea uh, for someone on the other end of the supply chain. If you're, um, let's say some there's a manufacturer who... Who, who sells a product in a retail store 
and the manufacturer and their union have a labor dispute and that retailer, this could be a local independent retailer who sells that product can then have uh, picketers outside their location. Um, so that's a real concern. Another thing, it doesn't matter if you're unionized or not. This isn't a, this doesn't, this affects potentially a lot of ununionized businesses that have nothing to do with labor dispute and something that's been banned actually since the Truman administration. And, uh, and they're potentially talking about bringing that back in the PRO Act and something that can have pretty scary consequences in the long term for small businesses. Oh, yeah. It's, um, yeah, some of this stuff is just, they, like you just mentioned, the, the uh, Truman presidency. Well, that was 1947 is when they did Taft-Hartley. And that's been outlawed since 1947. They're basically trying to undo all of that, right? Yeah. The other big thing, um, and I don't know the breakdown of your members, where they are located in the country, um, is the removal or the elimination of right-to-work states, which I would think is going to freak a lot of people out, even already unionized employees, if they're in the South or out in the West where there's right-to-work states. Yeah, that's a big deal. Um, Our members are all over the country more probably more concentrated in suburban and rural areas. So in the South and West, we have quite a few members uh, as long as the, as well as uh, across the Midwest. And um, yeah, that would be a huge deal uh, getting rid of, of that. And um, they're doing it through a pretty clever way and kind of repealing uh, a previous uh, piece of legislation and whether or not that would eventually get a Supreme court hearing uh, in terms of states rights would be another interesting issue. I don't know for certain, but um, that would really affect a lot of employers in a lot of states for obvious reasons, and is pretty scary to a lot of our members. Yeah, I've noticed a lot of people don't, they mistake right to work with employment at will, which are two different things. And usually when I'm dealing with employees to explain right to work, it's very simple. If you, if you live in a right to work state, you have the right to work at a unionized employer without being forced to pay the union to keep your job. Mm-hmm. If you're not in a right to work state, it's pay up or be fired, right? That's the only difference. And, but there's been studies on the, you know, economic growth and right to work states and all that. But there's, um, so which makes, you know, from the union's perspectives, I used to be a union rep 30 some odd years ago, you know, you have to represent workers that are not paying you. So why do you want to represent them? And I, I get both sides of that argument, but it's the removal of that um, which is literally just taking one sentence out of the National Labor Relations Act, the right to work state's status. Um, that's all they have to do. And Bernie Sanders is actually he introduced, God, probably 10, 12 years ago, a one-page bill just to remove right to work states. It had, yeah, yeah, it's, it it's never got one of those, And I think it's one of those issues when you actually explain it how you did to your average person who doesn't have skin in the game. I think they'll they'll have the right to work position. Um because, I mean, there, there's going to be people who want to join a profession or want to join uh, a company and just don't have an interest in the union. Uh, so I don't think that's a, a crazy position in any way, shape, or form. Like you said, I mean, I guess there's some sympathy to the free rider arguments from the unions. But at the same time, um, to compel someone is to, to, to pay for something they have zero interest in is also a, um, a pretty serious thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've been doing this a long time, um, coming up on four decades, and I've watched over the years how unions have 
um, really started shifting more towards a compulsory form of unionism versus voluntarism, which is what Samuel Gompers back 100 years ago used to promote. And it's in some in some ways, it's pretty sad because they've almost had to go compulsory and using the state as their, i.e. government, as their main enforcer, which then makes them more reliant on the state, which is, you know, the PRO Act. It's the EFTA 10 years ago, 12 years ago. You know, we need the government to help us do what we should be able to do on our own. And, yeah, they're doing that across the board. Yeah, and I mean, that, that brings up the interesting philosophical discussion of, you know, why why are union numbers down so much? Um, and, that, and, you know, and some people think that's because there was a time and earlier in the 20th century when working conditions were bad, wages were extremely low, and there was a real place for organized labor to help improve the lot of the American worker. And... Uh, there need and there needed to be some kind of balance between employers and employees. Um, we now have enough laws on the books, and uh, and and we have OSHA, and we have all, and we have the Department of Labor. Uh, and your average American probably doesn't look at the union and say, "This is my saving grace to improve my lot in the workforce." Um, and that's okay. That's not that's not a good thing or a bad thing. That's just a thing, right? Um, and you know, coercively using the government to to achieve an ends that the public isn't clamoring for uh, is that the best use of of, of government resources and government power? Um, probably not. Well, and it, it opens unions up. My my graduating paper in college, um, and I don't get into this a lot, but is one of the things. It was like the final straw that caused me to leave the union movement. Um, the one of the things that a lot of the today's unionists don't recognize is when you become reliant on the government. And this is Samuel Gompers warned of this a hundred years ago. Like it was nineteen twenty four. I think he he may have said this, but essentially what you're doing is you're putting all your eggs in the government basket and the government swings back and forth. So you may have pro-labor legislation this year, but next year it can be reversed. And unions have gone back and forth like that. You know, it's happened to them now for decades. You know, you've seen it just, you know, just in the last two administrations, President Obama's, you know, National Labor Relations Board, very pro-union. Trump comes in, undoes it all. Now we've got Biden, very pro-union. The next Republican president's going to undo it all. It, you know, if you're running a business that's wholly reliant on the government, it's not going to be good for your business. Yeah, it, and, and I think that in the public perception, there's a couple different feelings on unions where I think you saw someone like Chris Christie do a pretty good job talking about some of the union excesses in the public sector with the teachers union in New Jersey. Yep. Um, and I think if you think about it as a taxpayer and an average citizen, that some of your public sector unions, um, if you're using your political clout to give yourself greater benefits that may not be in the best interest of the state, the federal government, the city, whomever you're negotiating with, 
um, that might make some people unhappy that your average citizen, that you are getting outsized maybe payer benefits than you would have gotten otherwise because of uh, political clout, for lack of a better term. Um, whereas I think people have a little different interpretation between, all right, if you're going to be a private sector union and there's no dirty tricks on either side and you want to go negotiate with your private employer for your wages, I think most people are kind of neutral on that. And as long as, like I said, there's no dirty tricks by the employers or the union, I think people are pretty comfortable with, okay, go battle it out. But the issue I think we see from a policy perspective is if you're going to try to shift the balance of power in those negotiations to one entity or the other, if you're going to make it so that an employer has no chance to, to get a, a, a fair deal and a fair shakeout of these efforts, then that's a problem. And vice versa, an employer shouldn't have too much power that they can just destroy the union either, right? And I think that from a policy-making perspective, you need to kind of try to strike that balance. I think that's, if you were to ask your average American, that's probably what they would think is best, not that they get into the details on how that actually works. Well, Ed, okay, so we got to come back to New Jersey in a second. So um, part of the, I think, what a lot of people don't realize with with unions themselves, and they, the unions are always using for the reasons of passing the PRO Act or EFCA before that, um, you know, all the employer opposition out there. Unions win, I think last year it might have been like 72% of all secret ballot elections. You know, they win more elections than they lose. And if people think, well, it's, be, you know, they're not getting any kind of toehold because the employers are fiercely opposed to unions, you can't, that argument doesn't fly in the face of history. Like, there's no Pinkertons out there beating people up anymore. The Pinkerton agency still exists, but they don't, you know, there's no baseball bats on the bridge, which is what happened in the 1940s. You know, sit-down strikes, don't really see those that much anymore. I think last one I saw was about five years ago. So the employers were much more fiercely opposed to unions 100 years ago than they are today. You know, yes, they're opposed to them, but they're not doing what the employers did back in the day, so to speak, 100 years ago. So let me, let's touch on New Jersey for a second, because you used Chris Christie, and I happened to be living in New Jersey when Christie was elected. Um, he did, so part of the problem, not to pick on your home state, is uh, the, the unions predominantly control the state house in New Jersey, right? Mm-hmm. And so they have, it is the highest property tax state. It is the number one state. I just saw this a couple of days ago. Number one state that people are leaving. Um, it's, I believe it's public sector pension funds are still underwater. Haven't been resolved. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and the, a lot of folks don't understand the connection between when you have unions that are basically and this is the public sector I'm speaking about, um, unions get politicians elected who then dole out favors or sweet contracts to them in exchange for getting reelected next time around. And it's a really vicious cycle. And in the public sector, it's the taxpayers that wind up footing the bill. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you, I mean, Christie did a great job of articulating the issues. I think when he was there, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a little while now, the teachers at the time were paying, I believe, zero 
towards their their health care. They weren't right. paying they weren't paying a dime. Whereas your average American was, I, I, I want to say maybe 12% at the time, your average American in the private sector plan. So I think he was asking for three, four, five percent, something much smaller than your average private sector employee. And they threw a fit over it. And oh, I think your average yeah, person. Yeah, they're outsided by the thousands, like tens of thousands of union yeah, teachers. Yeah, and, and your outside. average person looks at something like that. They're like, oh, wait, really? They get that level of a benefit? It's like, I think your average person's like, yeah, they should have fair and good benefits. But define that, right? You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So what else? what else is NFIB up to? Uh, looking at my um, list here, I guess the other thing we're really concerned about um, in the long term is potentially revisiting the overtime exemption threshold. Um, so by way of background, that was increased from, I believe, about 28000 to about 35000 under President Trump. Prior to that, President Obama tried to increase it to about $50,000 with I think automatic uh, increases either every year or every other year. That was thrown out in court. Um, so that's on the agenda, rulemaking agenda for at some point this year. And again, it was just increased on the Trump administration at $35,000. Um, if that gets increased significantly again, that's another big driver in the cost of labor. And it would be another quick increase considering it just happened. So something we're concerned about, we've heard progressives in the house talk about raising that number as high as $80,000. Um, so that would be a, a big serious policy change and really uh, concerns small business owners. There's even been talk and there's a, I think one of the progressives has a bill in Congress to change the uh, work week uh, from five days to four, meaning you're eligible for overtime at 32 hours rather than 40. So a lot of these policies yeah. are out there and are, are pretty concerning. I saw the headline on that, but I didn't open the article. Um, so they're not, they're not actually proposing a 40 hour, 10, you know, four days at 10 hours each. They're saying 32 hours. They want to lower the work. Yeah, as to? far as I'm aware, it would change from 40 to 32 hours and you'd be eligible for overtime at 32 hours. Wow. Talk about screwing up the, the, the labor shortage that we've already got because yeah not helpful and this hasn't to be clear this is just a bill introduced in congress uh you know president biden isn't calling for this yet uh and you know hasn't taken up for a markup or anything but these things sometimes can gain momentum pretty quickly yeah and so there's you know a couple different unions have been calling for years to to lower the work week down to um, 36 hours in one case when one of the unions are 35 hours they've got in their actual constitution. The problem that a lot of people don't understand with that is that if you have to start paying overtime after 32 hours, 35 hours, whatever the amount is, there's a economic threshold that after so many hours of overtime, it doesn't become feasible to work the overtime. You might as well hire another person. And from the union's perspective, that's what it's for right, to get full employment for their union members. But on the flip side to that, when we're looking at labor shortages across the nation, you're basically either going to dramatically increase the cost of doing business, well, on the on the overtime side, or you're going to have to hire more people, but we don't have the bodies for it. 
Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's interesting because so many people are talking about what can we do to help with inflation? You know, what can we do to, to get this under control? And some of it's really difficult to do um, in terms of your supply chains, right? There, there's a few things, but it's, it's tough. It's harder because it's more of a global thing. One thing you could do is, is don't make it worse. You know, you pass some of the, if you make the cost of labor significantly more expensive, as we've already seen, uh, this will be passed on. If you keep doing it, inflation, this will not help with inflation, will only make issues worse. So this would be something that would make it worse, not better. And if I, we can give any advice to policymakers, just don't make this worse right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's an interesting way to put it. The, uh, yeah, politicians have a tendency to do that. They they create issues, and then their solution is to create more issues. Yeah, but, yeah create a problem, fix it, and potentially create another problem. Right. Well, Jeff, I, uh, I apologize for the audio issues, but I've taken up almost an hour and a half of your time. Uh, no worries. Um, appreciate you having me on. I really enjoyed it. I'd, I'd like to do this again if you guys have something coming up or you guys are... Or uh, have issues popping up because I always find it helpful to find out what's going on in Washington by talking to people who are actually in in the mix of it, in the fray. Oh yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll definitely let you know if something else pops up. Um, a lot of times things come unexpectedly that are really big deals, and I'll give you a heads up. All right, appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks. Have a good one. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. That was Jeff Brabant from the National Federation of Independent Business. If you're interested or if you're a small business owner, you have a friend, relative who's a small business owner and are interested in finding out more about the NFIB, you can go to NFIB.com. And in addition to that, I'm going to be including some links to NFIB and some other statistics for you below the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. In any case... That wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out to us, you can go to laborunionnews.com. You can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. Radio.